Halloween is on the way. Time to buy yourself some treats. Cryptocurium.com Maker of handmade horrors for your home. From Lovecraft to slasher flicks, Halloween to frozen Krampuses. The season of the witch starts here. Cryptocurium.com The artist is the creator of beautiful things. To reveal art and conceal the artist is art's aim. The critic is he who can translate into another manner or a new material his impression of beautiful things. The highest as the lowest form of criticism is a mode of autobiography. Those who find ugly meanings in beautiful things are corrupt without being charming. This is a fault. Those who find beautiful meanings in beautiful things are the cultivated. For these, there is hope. They are the elect, to whom beautiful things mean only beauty. There is no such thing as a moral or an immoral book. Books are well written or badly written, that is all. All art is at once surface and symbol. Those who go beneath the surface do so at their peril. Those who read the symbol do so at their peril. It is the spectator, and not life, that art really mirrors. Diversity of opinion about a work of art shows that the work is new, complex, and vital. When critics disagree, the artist is in accord with himself. We can forgive a man for making a useful thing, as long as he does not admire it. The only excuse for making a useless thing is that one admires it intensely. All art is quite useless. Oscar Wilde. Those were two selections from the preface to The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. H.P. Lovecraft wrote in Supernatural Horror and Literature, Oscar Wilde may be given a place amongst weird writers for his vivid Picture of Dorian Gray, in which a marvelous portrait for years assumes the duty of aging and coarsening instead of its original, who meanwhile plunges into every excess of vice and crime without the outward loss of youth, beauty, and freshness. It is a classic horror novel, and that's why we're going to discuss it here on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. We're here at hppodcraft.com and Patreon, but we also have a guest. That's right, folks. We are very lucky to be joined by writer Jamie Britton. Hello, Jamie. Hey, how you doing? Glad to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. I've been a a big fan for a long time, so it's uh, very exciting. Where are you joining us from? I live in Walton-on-Thames in uh, deepest, darkest Surrey, just south of London. Deepest, darkest Surrey. You have to say that because it makes it sound interesting when actually it's the most boring place in England. So, Aww. Jamie is the co-creator of the hit television show Skins. And uh, more importantly, as he stated, a fan of this show, we connected on Twitter and I was a little starstruck because and we actually talked about this on the show a bit. Chris and I will often say, you know, it's hard to get into these shows and movies set in high school. But when Skins became available in the US, a lot of people told me to watch it. My wife and I devoured the first few seasons. And so I was excited that you liked our show and even more excited that you said you'd come on and talk to us. Yeah, just a pleasure to be asked. I'll just keep saying that. Pleasure to be asked. Now, what are you working on now? (laughs) We're writing on the second series of Breeders, which is a sitcom with Martin Freeman. The first series is Around and About, should you want to watch it. And it's, it's a good show. And I'm doing various other things in the standard way of being a TV writer, a whole bunch of maybes and possiblys and probably nots (laughs) on the horizon, which I'm just kind of, you know, (laughs) moseying towards. How did 
did you get into weird fiction and, and this kind of Lovecrafty creepy stuff? So I owe it all to my friend Phil, who looks like he plays bass in a doom metal band, but is actually a really good uh, defense lawyer who lives up uh, <laughs> up in York. <laughs> That's what makes you a good defense lawyer, is that specific look. I would love to be a doom metal defense lawyer. That sounds like such a great job. <laughs> we met on the internet in like 2001 in like a forum or something. He was always really into the stuff. I knew Lovecraft as a kind of reference, but I'd never really tried to sort of read any of the work or anything like that. And he sort of started me off with The Rats in the Walls, which was my first Lovecraft story. That story is horrible and amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And there's no way I couldn't sort of go ahead and read absolutely everything else he'd ever written after that point. Yeah, Rats in the Walls Uh, is is a fantastic Lovecraft story that will also right away confront you with the problems the author has as well. Well, it depends on what version you read because there's edited versions of them that are more palatable to a modern audience. It's very much the first boss battle of that book (laughs) is the racist cat. (laughs) (laughs) Well, today we are also lucky to be joined by the star of our episodes on Frankenstein, G. Glenn Hyde, the Invisible Man. He does all the classics. It's Greg Johnson. Yes, he is not only beautiful, he is cultivated. (laughs) And he has joined us yet again with his talent. Check out Greg on YouTube. As always, he's got a lot of great stuff. There's actually a recent release of unseen Woody Brown footage. You know, his audio. Oh, yes. His audio specialist. Editing character. I love that stuff. He's always funny. Yeah. And Greg was perfect for this because he actually used to work as an artist on a a boardwalk. You know, like those caricature artists, he would do that. But his were Dorian Gray themed. He would do like your Dorian Gray caricature. So he'd draw you plus whatever sin he thought maybe you'd committed that day. And then people would line up to see this. It was really cool. It was like combination fortune telling street art. But yeah. his trick was he'd do a really good character of the person. But then the sin, it was the same one every time. It was always them just giving him a little kiss. And then the person would say, I didn't do that. And he'd, and he'd say, well, that's the sin. <laughs> Which is clever, but, you know, kind of a bad business model. It resulted in a lot of refunds instead of kisses. So he had to put that away, as with so many projects. But anyway, this is a literary podcast. So let's continue with our elevated discussion. I don't know how much biography we've done on Oscar Wilde before. We covered the Canterville Ghost. I think that's all we've covered of his. He's come up a lot. I feel like Wild's ghost might haunt us if we don't do a little biography about him, so... Sure, yeah. I mean, we could talk about this guy for the entire episode because he had a very interesting life. But the basics, he was born in Dublin in 1854. He went to Trinity College in Dublin and then he went to Oxford. He moved to London, lived in America for a time, then he went back to London. Brom Stoker married his childhood sweetheart. That's Florence Malcolm. She got stoked. She got stoked. <laughs> <laughs> She got stoked. He became a journalist in the late 1880s. This story, The Picture of Dorian Gray, was published in 1890 in July in Lippincott's monthly magazine. It was criticized for its decadence and allusions (laughs) to homosexuality. He became a popular playwright with uh, hits like Salome and The Importance of Being Earnest. And right at the height of his fame, he began this affair with a young aristocrat named Lord Alfred Douglas. And Lord Alfred's father was the Marquis of Queensberry, known for the creation of the modern rules of boxing. Hmm. Queen Tuberry's rules, you know, when they always say that, that's why it's this. It's all tied into this. I see. He warned Wilde away from his son, and Wilde said, I don't know what the Queensberry rules are, but the Oscar Wilde rule is to shoot on sight. <laughs> so he... T- <laughs> Big Second Amendment fan, Oscar Wilde. <laughs> 
So his father took him to <laughs> took Wilde to court, and he got busted for sodomy and gross indecency. Yeah, it was weird. It was, not that this was deserved, but Wilde kind of helped things along himself because the Marquis was in the press calling him. I think it was a somdomite is the way that he was pronouncing it, which which definitely sounds like something my dad would have insisted on mispronouncing. <laughs> but um, <laughs> as a result of this somdomite language, Wilde brought a libel suit against the Marquis. Yeah, which was lost and then as a result of losing that he was immediately put on trial for homosexuality for which he was found guilty. He was sentenced to hard labor and spent the next two years in prison and then he moved to France never to return to England. The last three years of his life he lived in poverty and exile. He died in 1900 at the age of 46. Before we jump into the story itself let's talk about that preface because it's a lot to, to take in. The magazine edition of this story was heavily edited and criticized for its immorality. And so this preface was included from Wilde in the version that was revised for publication as a book afterward. So it's a meditation on the reception of this very novel. It's a defense of the novel. It's an explanation for how the novel should be read. But I also felt like it was incredibly timely, given the daily debate that folks are having over being able to separate artists from their art. And that includes H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah. I'm just wondering how you guys were affected reading this in the current moment. What did you take from it personally? And Jamie, I'm sure you probably have some experience offending sensibilities with uh, your show. So maybe you've thought about this stuff as well. Oh, I mean, absolutely. Uh, usually just by the show itself being bad. But sometimes <laughs> I think due to sort of uh, sensibilities of the time. I mean, what I did when similar stuff happened to me is I had an awkward interview with a blogger who I thought was my friend, but turned out not to be. Yeah, I know it was all absolutely fine. It's television, who cares? But what I didn't do, and I realise now is what I should have done, is um, publish a uh, sort of aphorism-based... <laughs> defense of art itself <laughs> by means of uh, I, see, I, I see you don't like the way that our lesbian characters are behaving today well let me put it to you and then just like, several paragraphs of med- meditation on the meaning of art it's not a bad idea because Wilde is sort of he's saying that if you find bad stuff in art it's because you're a bad person right absolutely he's saying cancel me will you <laughs> well there is some art that is conveying a, a definite message. This is bad or this is immoral. Well, he's doing this thing, which is very funny to me, but it is kind of, I don't, I don't know what logical fallacy it falls under, but he's kind of being elastic with what the description of art is. So he does say an ethical sympathy in an artist is an unpardonable mannerism of style, right? Which just means if you're supporting something, if it's very obvious that you're pushing an agenda, that's bad style. So I'm not talking about that. There's art and art is simply there to be beautiful. And if something is trying to push an agenda, it's not art anymore. That there's no inherent morality in art and that it's only what you bring to it that matters. And so you can't censor or shun something. When I read it, I'm kind of, you know, there's part of me that just wants to go shut up and let's get on with the show. (laughs) Yes. Why are you here showing off? (laughs) Yeah, no, that's true. I also sort of understand the instinct to do it because he was this big personality in the day. He was more famous, really, for his personality at this point than he was for kind of anything else. Mm. Uh, He was uh, lampooned in Punch in a cartoon when he was still at university and hadn't done anything, Mm. really. That's how famous his personality was. So I can imagine that there was a kind of desire to hear from him, to hear from his voice. Mm. Yeah. And actually what he gives the, the readers who are sort of crying out for that is this kind of list of 
smoke and mirrors. These things that sort of seem vaguely contradictory, but also very definitive, that are attacking the notion of, uh, of authorship itself. And I think that's fascinating and playful and, and isn't cause to go shut up and get on with the show, actually. It's more teasing you and playing with your notions of authorship in ways I think are actually quite, they work for the book rather than work against it. Yeah. Yes, and we'll meet this character, Lord Henry, who is this corrupting influence. I feel like we got Lord Henry a little with this, because as you say, it sounds very definitive, but it's also very confusing. So it puts me in this headspace coming into the novel where I'm not sure how I feel about anything, which is sort of what Lord Henry does to uh, to Dorian Gray. But I think Jamie's right. I think this is all smoke and mirrors. He's, he's totally full of shit. He knows it. And the very last thing, it, all art is quite useless. So it's like all this is pointless that we're talking about anyway. So who cares? <laughs> Dad, turn the car around. All out. It's quite useless. <laughs> it's like Let's go home. he winds us up with this whole very complicated thing and it gets you thinking. He goes, oh, yeah, by the way, it doesn't matter. None of it. So who cares? Yeah. On with so the show. In the end, it's almost a comedic effect, I guess. It is. Welcome to this useless discussion we're about to have. <laughs> it's going to be great. <laughs> Doors are locked from the other side. <laughs> Uh, What did you think? Just one last thing on there, though. He says that we can forgive a man for making a useful thing so long as he does not admire it. What? What does that mean? Does that mean that if you, you know, create a vaccine or something, the one thing you can't do is take credit for it, you know, or that you can't? What does it mean? I don't think it means anything. Fair enough. I I really, I really don't. I think it sounds like it means something, and that's what he's really good at is coming up with these things that sound like they mean something. But when you think about it, it's like, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. A car is a useful thing. Yeah. But it can look beautiful. It could be a work of art and still be a useful practical thing or any products. I mean, there's a whole industrial design philosophy behind making useful things that are beautiful and work well. So he's just being crazy. He's being silly. (laughs) He is. One thing he does throughout as well is that he stacks lots of them on top of each other rather than letting one of these sayings, these aphorisms yes. just sort of hang so you can consider it. He puts one after another, after another, after another, like he's doing mm. here, which renders them meaningless, whether you like it or not, which I think is a very clever move, really. Yeah, it is. Intellectual uh, misdirection, in a way. He says something, you start to think about it, but then as you look over there, and then you're like thinking about that now, and then you move, so you're like, wow, I got some heavy stuff thrown at me, and it's like, uh no, you just got jazzed. <laughs> <laughs> you just got jazzed. Do you think that's what he called it? Yeah. No, it comes from maybe that was an expression he made up, and that's where jazz. That is from. where that was his what? stoked. He was like, Stoker's going to steal my wife. I'm going to come up with my own thing. I call it jazz. Wait, I'm going to do it right here. He says in here, you know, it's funny. He says the artist should be really distant from the art. There should be none of them in it. That's when art is really good. But Jamie makes a good point. He shows up at the beginning of the book and he's like, look at me. Here are my opinions. (laughs) So he's totally undercutting his whole message just by writing the message, which is brilliant. Chapter one. The studio was filled with the rich odour of roses, and when the light summer wind stirred amidst the trees of the garden, there came through the open door the heavy scent of the lilac, or the more delicate perfume of the pink-flowering thorn. From the corner of the divan of Persian saddlebags on which he was lying, smoking, as was his custom, innumerable cigarettes, Lord Henry Wotton could just catch the gleam of the honey-sweet and honey-coloured blossoms of a laburnum, whose tremulous branches seemed hardly able to bear the burden of a beauty so flame-like as theirs. The dim roar of London was like the bourdon note of a distant organ. 
In the centre of the room, clamped to an upright easel, stood the full-length portrait of a young man of extraordinary personal beauty. And in front of it, some little distance away, was sitting the artist himself, Basil Hallward, whose sudden disappearance some years ago caused at the time such public excitement and gave rise to so many strange conjectures. I just want to point out that I was never a smoker. Like, I never regularly smoked cigarettes. I occasionally smoked cigarettes when I drank. This story made me want to smoke cigarettes. (laughs) I really have a craving for cigarettes, and I haven't had a craving for... I never really had cravings for cigarettes, but I do now. It's a corrupting book. Not just any cigarette either. I bet you want to take them out of a special metal case. Yes. Pluck one out and put it in a specialized holder. I... Yes, I do. Indeed. I went out and bought a snuff box. <laughs> I've never taken snuff in my life. <laughs> Put a bunch of perfume on my sleeves. I don't know why I did that. We are in the painter's studio, and the painter is Basil Hallward. He's there with Lord Henry Wotton, and they are talking about his newest masterpiece, A Portrait of a Beautiful Young Man. And this is a portrait of Dorian Gray. Lord Henry says that it's the best thing that he's ever done. Basil explains that he doesn't want to show it as it shows too much of himself. Henry says, what odd chaps you painters are. You do anything in the world to gain a reputation. As soon as you have one, you seem to want to throw it away. Silly for you, for there is only one thing in the world worse than being talked about, and that is not being talked about. Woo! Jazz! (laughs) Jazz! How do you like being jazzed? Yeah, I've heard that one before. I have, That's one that's been around quite a bit. So, yeah, I mean, what, like four paragraphs into it, you're getting some high-octane wild. (laughs) Basil prophesizes that his art, Lord Henry's wealth and Dorian Gray's beauty, will bring them all suffering at some point. Lord Henry is this very wealthy person that seems bored with everything, and he's, he's very cynical, and he's just one of those guys that is just trying to find things to entertain himself at anybody's expense. He doesn't seem to worry about any kind of consequences for anything. Yeah, he's the Iago and the Mephistopheles and even kind of the femme fatale of this whole thing. Mm. Talking about this, he, you know what it reminded me of this time when I was reading was Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> because, and this is really more about Oscar Wilde, but I used to see Dangerfield on The Tonight Show or whatever late night show and he'd do his mm-hmm. act, but then he'd come to the couch to have a discussion with the host and that's usually where you talk about what's going on in your life. Which he would do, but then he had more one-liners that he was working into the discussion. It was like a trick. It was a second act. Yeah. And I feel yeah. like Henry, maybe this whole novel, it's like, this is Oscar Wilde's couch conversation. <laughs> you know, he's, he's telling a story. There's a book here, but it's also sort of a one-liner delivery method. You know, it's to get yeah. out more material. It's kind of like how popcorn is... You're not really eating the popcorn. It's a delivery system for salt. It's a delivery system for butter, you know? <laughs> right. But this weird tale is a delivery system for these witticisms. He's such an amazing character. As soon as the book starts, he kind of takes over in exactly the way you can sort of imagine him taking over as soon as he walks into a, into a room. And his attitude is at once, everything is sort of hilarious and also terrible and, and kind of tragic, but he's sort of cynical about the whole thing. And, yeah. and and throwing these aphorisms around like he's trying to sort of paint the walls with them. <laughs> it feels really, it feels like a really modern character. And it was funny, I was, I was getting milk today, shuffled onto my Spotify, was There is a Light That Never Goes Out by The Smiths. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the kind of two seconds before I immediately turned that song off, because you know, who wants to listen to that song ever? But I was yeah. sort of suddenly like reminded of how much influence the sort of Wildean register has, this kind of, attitude towards life which is sort of fey and camp but also intellectual and also and sort of ironic as well and how morrissey 
very much sort of affecting that and yeah. the idea of affectation itself and it's it's so strong in this book and particularly in these sections with henry that it kind of reverberates across an entire century of literature and art and music absolutely the smiths in the song cemetery gates he cites oscar wilde as his inspiration for all the stuff that he writes. On a very personal level, I think this character of Lord Henry is also, you know, when we first start initiating ourselves into social cliques and there's somebody who's a little standoffish, been there, done that, has an opinion about everything. That person you first go, I want to impress them so badly. They seem to have a, a, a spin on everything. Mm -hmm. That influence in your life, which is frequently the person that tries you to do some rotten stuff. <laughs> that first person you meet that's like that. And when Basil is talking about this new subject, he's obsessing over Dorian. Henry introduces some key thematic stuff. It says beauty, real beauty, ends where an intellectual expression begins. Intellect itself is a mode of exaggeration and destroys the harmony of any face. So if you're too smart, you're going to turn out ugly. You know, he, he, he has a <laughs> drive-by on the church here. He says that might not be the same in the church because there a bishop keeps on saying the same thing at the age of 80 that he was told to say when he was a boy of 18. So they look great all the time, which <laughs> Really funny. But then he says, your young friend whose name you've never told me. He never thinks, I'm sure of that. He's some brainless, beautiful creature. It's this idea that beauty is all surface. As you say, Henry comes in right away, starts saying shocking things, provoking thought, whether he actually means these things or not. Lord Henry is obviously a stand-in for Wilde, but some of the stuff he says, I wonder if Wilde actually believed them. Wilde said that Henry is how people see him, how the public imagine him. Basil is what he's really like. And Dorian is sort of the person he wants himself to be or imagines himself to be. So I think oh. with Henry, he's taking aspects of himself, but he's ballooning them up to colossal ah. scale. Almost kind of Larry David in, in Curb Your Enthusiasm, you know, that kind right. of turn the volume way, way up on your instincts. Whereas Basil, who's this milk toast sort of artiste who can't, who's just sort of so taken with beauty that he can't articulate it, is a more vulnerable side, side of Wilde that I guess people didn't recognize so much. Now, in, in the story, uh, Basil lets slip Dorian's name, even though he didn't mean to say it. And then he says this, When I like people immensely, I never tell their names to anyone. It is like surrendering a part of them. I have grown to love secrecy. It seems to be the one thing that can make modern life mysterious or marvelous to us. The commonest thing is delightful if one only hides it. I, I guess he just wants to hide his muse, which I get. And it was funny, before the show we were talking, Jamie has a haunted doll that gives him all of his TV plots. I don't know. Wow. He won't even let me look at it. I mean, you say haunted, he's more troubled. Yeah. <laughs> he, did a lot of mush <laughs> he did a lot of mushrooms in the early days of new metal, is all I'll say. So. Wow. Yeah, see? Yeah. That's the first he's actually said anything about it. He, he's been hiding that muse so much that I just made that up, and it was true. <laughs> That's how hidden it was. But that for me, actually, that that hits on a little bit of a, of a truism, that idea that if you kind of keep things secret, if you have a little secret, it makes life a bit more interesting. Yes, it's true. Basil says that he is afraid of showing the picture to the world because it would reveal the secret of his very soul. And we find out at this point that Henry is married, which leads to an important thing here. It says, I believe you are really a good husband, Basil says this, but that you are thoroughly ashamed of your own virtues. You never say a moral thing and you never do a wrong thing. Your cynicism is simply a pose, which, you know, he's an instigator. He's a corrupter. But he probably doesn't actually do this stuff in his life. And I think I've met quite a few people like that. 
they want to see a mess, but actually in their own life, they're very circumspect. They don't have all this wildness. Oh, yeah. And it's funny, I like, I, I'm not one to reference Skins uh, every opportunity I get, but Tony in the first series of Skins, yes. is uh, who's the guy played by Nicholas Holt, was this kind of, he was based on a friend of mine who is one of my favorite people in the world and I, I love like a brother. But when he was a teenager, he was he was cleverer than everyone else. And he had the ability to just kind of take control of things in a way that could make you feel quite small. And it was just because he was smarter. And with Nick Holt in Skins, you know, I wanted to kind of make that into something. Like the whole idea of if someone realizes that they can be powerful, what a kind of terrible thing that can be. Mm. Because it can make you sort of forget <laughs> that other people exist and sort of start to treat them as playthings. Mm-hmm. And I think lots of the best villains, and I'm not necessarily saying that Skins comprises this, but there is that sense of how humanity can fall away when you're too obsessed with your own sense of influence. Sure, mm. and there's some pretty horrific comeuppance as well for those tendencies, right? I mean, he set some things in motion that turn out in some pretty disastrous ways, if I recall. He gets hit by a bus. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what to reveal and whatnot. <laughs> the show's been on a long time, so well, you yeah. haven't seen it by now. I can- <laughs> <laughs> Strangely, that also happens uh, to Lord Henry in this <laughs> weird science fiction moment where he gets hit by a bus. Bus from the future might have killed. Basil's a pretty independent guy, but he met Dorian two months prior. Has become pl- completely obsessed with him as a subject. He feels it's really changed his art. It's made it more vital. But the extent of this obsession is something he's fairly embarrassed about. It seems he's only admitted it to Henry. This is something that. It seemed really apparent to me when I was reading it. It felt like Basil and Lord Henry, they say they're friends, but there is an implication that they were lovers at some point. The way that they talk to each other, the way that he's protective of Dorian, it it does seem sexual. Yeah. Right? That's not just me. The book is so gay (laughs) in in so many ways. Yeah. Um, And it's funny to think about the kind of world that this that these men lived in and the world that Oscar Wilde himself lived in, it was just the queerest place on earth in all senses of that word. Everyone's personality was hidden. Everyone was kind of creeping through shadows, a sort of sense of pre-normality I've heard people say about this time and that no one really had a sense of what normal necessarily was. Hmm. And so everyone's personalities were kind of in this weird fluctuating state. There was so much of a sense of permissibleness to everything. And so Mm -hmm. this whole first section of the book really does, to me, feel like a kind of explication or an unpacking of that. It's so erotic and intimate, this scene of these lads, (laughs) lads, such a weird phrase, but these lads in this room almost seducing each other with their words. It is a very bohemian, Arcadian atmosphere. Basil in the book is the one, to me, who feels like he's definitely the gay one. And the Mm. fact that there is a moment later on, and it's also alluded to earlier, where He's worried what people will think of his picture of Dorian because of what it reflects of, what what it reflects of in him. And what it reflects, apart from anything else, is his adoration for this young man and his ability to reproduce his beauty entirely. And that's something frightening as the book goes on. Mm -hmm. And for me, that speaks of basically he is gay and he feels a true, genuine sexual love for Dorian. Basil explains that he met Dorian at uh, Lady Brandon's party and he locked eyes with Dorian at this party and that fascinated and terrified him at the same time. He tried to leave the party, but Lady Brandon insisted that he stay. And then he ended up talking to Dorian and they start, and he started up this friendship with him. And Basil sees Dorian on a daily basis. Lord Henry thinks that he's heard of Dorian from his Aunt Agatha, but he didn't really pay attention to her at the time. And Basil says that he doesn't want 
Henry to meet Dorian because of his corrupting influence. Like he just says it outright. Yeah. Also, I think he might be afraid that he's going to take him away. He's going to find Dorian attractive and whatever Henry wants, Henry gets kind of situation. Just then the butler comes in and tells them Dorian Gray is there. Henry, who is leaving, decides, you know what? I'm going to stay. It's sort of a comedic button on the scene. The fact that he says, you'll never meet him. And then he's there. Yeah. Basil says he doesn't want Lord Henry to corrupt him because Dorian has a simple and beautiful nature. Is that the case at this point, do you think? Hmm. Because I don't know, can we lay all this blame at, at Lord Henry's feet? Or is there something really kind of rotten going on to begin with with this guy? It's it's just, it's hard to know. Well, there's also something about his station, the privilege that he has in his life, that there's a certain degree of apathy one must have to like live in that world. We see it uh, like later on when he starts to fall for Henry's shtick that yeah. he's ready for it. Like he's just lapping that up. I think, yeah, he is responsible for it. I don't think Henry did anything that he wasn't really wanting to do, just didn't know how to do it. The first we see of Dorian is this painting. And the first we hear of him is talk around him. And then he enters the room finally and he is this childlike blank slate. I mean, I think he is absolutely responsible for what follows, but it's funny that this is the only scene where he and the painting are kind of one and the same. He is this reflection of an ideal who doesn't really have much to kind of speak to, really, until uh, Lord Henry starts dripping poison into his ear. Purely, it seems out of sort of sheer delight at this guy's beauty. And it's sort of this fascinating seduction, I guess, of of someone who appears, at least, appearances are what this book is kind of about in many Mm -hmm. ways, who appears to be an innocent, but is going to be proven to be anything but. And that gets us into chapter two. Dorian is sitting for Basil as he paints, and Lord Henry is talking to Dorian. And Dorian, like I said, he's just eaten up all the things he he's talking about, how there should be a return to the Hellenic ways of life. Yeah, Henry says this interesting thing. He says, I believe that if one man were to live out his life fully and completely, were to give form to every feeling, expression to every thought, reality to every dream, I believe that the world could return to a Hellenic ideal, Mm -hmm. but the bravest man amongst us is afraid of himself. The mutilation of the savage has its tragic survival and the self-denial that mars our lives. Uh, So he's kind of promulgating this very satanic Bible kind of idea that there's indulgence versus compulsion and that we need to indulge in things that we long for Mm -hmm. because if we don't, we're building up this sickness and that somebody really lives when they go off in pursuit of every bad idea that they have i guess he says the only way to get rid of a temptation is to yield to it resist it and your soul grows sick with longing i mean it's the moment for me which is the most you know paging dr lovecraft (laughs) moment in the whole book (laughs) you know because (laughs) saying that the world would gain such a fresh impulse of joy uh that we would forget all of the maladies of medievalism and return to the hellenic ideal to something finer richer than the hellenic ideal you know this suggestion that at base, that at impulse, there is something beautiful about humanity. Men, he always just says men, never women. Yeah. There is mm. something beautiful about us. And, and it's, only our, it's only our filters which stop that from being the case, that we don't live in this kind of amazing Arcadian heaven, which of course is kind of opposite what H.P. thought, HP thought about stuff. Yeah. The idea that actually when you get down to the base level of things, everything is kind of ugly and... And, and wretched and insanity-inducing. Yeah. And I thought it's really interesting because 
the novel that subsequently plays out is surprisingly Lovecraftian, <laughs> actually. Mm. And it's almost like the two modes of thought kind of come together at the end of it, really. Even from this moment where it seems just like the opposite way of thinking about the world. It also, to me, sounds like a person that hasn't ever had to deal with violence in their life either to say th something like that like well these primal impulses where people are can be violent and that violence is pr a primal thing when people want something from somebody else they'll take it when you're yeah. in this this world this kind of this aristocracy they're not afraid for their safety they're allowed to be shitty to each other because they know that the repercussions will only be like reputation or maybe even financial, but never like violence. Like I'm surprised that nobody just beat the crap out of uh, Lord Henry at any point in his life. Cause he seems like the kind of guy that would get punched, but he doesn't. Yeah, and this stuff is so clearly untrue. You're absolutely right. There's no, it doesn't stand up to no. any examination whatsoever. I think that we're going to talk about this more as we go along, but the whole book also obviously revolves on this, around this notion of narcissism and self-interest. Yes. When we look, he, he's already set up, when we're looking at art, we're looking at our own flaws. When we like something, we like something because it's about mm -hmm. us, you know. If we don't like romanticism, it's because it's not showing us. If we do like real, if we don't like realism, it's because it's showing too much of us, but it's always about us, it's about us, it's about us. This kind of theory only works it's if, if it's it's about you. If you pursue every lust, somebody's going to get hurt. Mm. The other doesn't matter. It's about you. Right. Yeah. Does this book come down on the side of that sort of narcissism? I don't think it's actually making a statement one way or the no. other, but it is showing how selfishness and, and narcissism, how, you know, everything kind of rotates. On well, it. I mean, I think it, I think it does, but I mean, obviously we can discuss that when we get to the end of it. Now, I may not be buying what Lord Henry's lying down, but Dorian is eating it up. He loves this stuff. He's eating it up, and it cracks his head open to hear this stuff. I mean, I don't think anybody's really confronted him with these kinds of contrary theories before, and when he hears it, it really, he has to take like 10 minutes and just think about all the stuff yeah. that has been said to him. But then Lord Henry goes a little too far and a little too personal with a notion. And he starts talking about Dorian Gray's beauty as it being the only asset that he really has. He says, you have a wonderful, beautiful, you have a wonderfully beautiful face, Mr. Gray. And beauty as a form of genius is higher indeed than genius as it needs no explanation. It is uh, of the great facts of the world like sunlight or springtime. The gods have been good to you, but what the gods give, they quickly take away. You have only a few years in which to live really perfectly and fully. When your youth goes, your beauty will go with it, and then you will suddenly discover that there are no triumphs left for you. <laughs> or have to content yourself with those mean triumphs that the memory of your past will make more bitter than defeats. Wow. So he just basically, in the moment, goes, you're gorgeous, and that's all you're ever going to have. Uh-huh. You know, and you need to appreciate it now, because when it's gone, it's going to be nothing but a, a, a painful memory. Yeah. You'll be useless. This is very much third martini sort of speech. <laughs> is he going to wake up in the morning It's like, oh my God, I can't believe I talked about. <laughs> I was talking about lilies and roses and war and beauty. <laughs> it gets in there into Dorian's head, unfortunately. He kind of internalizes this mess. Yes. Uh, Basil says that uh, the painting is Dorian's, that he's giving the painting to Dorian because... Lord Henry wants to buy it. But Dorian has a curious response. How sad it is, murmured Dorian Gray, with his eyes still fixed upon his own portrait. How sad it is. I shall grow old and horrible and dreadful, but this picture will remain always young. It will never be older than this particular day of June. If it were only the other way, if it were I who was to be always young and the picture that was to grow old... For that, for that, I would give everything. 
Yes, there is nothing in the whole world I would not give. I would give my soul for that. Whoa, so, like I say, I mean, he really internalized this. This uh, sudden opinion is the direct result of Henry's influence, and this is kind of where the the Faustian deal gets struck. Mm. There's no gust of wind or... Uh, ominous gong in the, in the background. <laughs> it just he just says this and it moves on, which I I rather like actually. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that this was a really interesting point in the story. As you say, there's no. I, I expected a coin to fall on its side and stay there. You're right. There's no totemic representation of the magic that happened. There's no bottle of magic potion. No. It just happens. It just happens. And it mirrors the sentiment that's presented at one point. I can't remember when that the, the greatest sins happen in the mind. I, I think that might be the creeping horror of the story because it really takes on a horrific sense right when Dorian realizes that this is actually happening halfway through the book Mm -hmm. that in fact it's already happened and it's something that he didn't know about that by wishing this it can just manifest itself that's kind of frightening oh yeah that you don't strike a deal that you just want something and now it's that way it kind of strips the rules away that you typically would have in a science fiction story like this so it's almost like a high concept twilight zone sort of thing but it's got a weird fiction thing around it where there are no rules yeah you don't know why it happened or when it's going to stop. And, and I love that. Yeah, the Faustian story is always, there's almost always some sort of transaction. Or, and there are transactions here, but there's no, there's no willingness. There's no conscious volition behind them. Like you say, it just happens. And that makes it, it makes it all the more Faustian, actually, because life doesn't present itself to you as a series of bargains. You just do what you do. And, yeah. And to find yourself suddenly at the center of one is... is like you say, absolutely horrifying in many respects. Yeah. Yeah. You just kind of scared me articulate. <laughs> <laughs> but it is. I mean, we do find ourselves in these situations oh. and they're our own doing. And you think if I had just had a clear choice, I wouldn't have chosen this direction. No. But because of my habits or because of my lack of doing certain things, here I am. So I made that choice. I just did it passively in some way. That's a real horror of existence, man. (laughs) It's fine. The portrait in my attic looks absolutely fine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's a great place to stop. I mean, obviously, we didn't get very far, only to the second chapter of this book. But there's a lot to talk about up front, and it moves much faster as as it goes along. Jamie, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Do you think you'd uh, consider coming back on for some of these other shows? Let me just uh, throw myself down on my fainting couch while I answer that question. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. If only, yes, a thousand times. Yes, yeah, absolutely. It's been a awesome. Ball. Oh, excellent. Well, if we've got you on board, and then hopefully Greg will be on board, and we can keep rolling on this book, because I'm having a really great time reading it again. It's surprisingly relevant to this day and age as well, I think. I want to thank Greg, who is neither old, horrible, or dreadful. He is delightful, and he is an excellent reader. So thank you, Greg. If you want to see Greg's awesome comedy stuff, check out Greg Johnson. That's G-R-E-I-G johnson at youtube he's got lots of funny stuff and he's a great guy he is a great guy to kiss him is not a sin i also want to thank some of our patrons and i'm going to start with jason templeton i'd like to thank cloven sunfish oh my god (laughs) (laughs) i know i'd like to thank eva mckenzie i'd like to thank deborah a wickline i'd like to thank jason denon i'd like to thank casey shelton rave wolf thank you so much I'd like to thank Kevin Salonen. Joshua David Finkelstein, thank you so much. And Jeremy Matat, thank you so much for your support and patronage. Without you guys, we wouldn't be still doing this crazy show. We will be back with more Dorian Gray next time. For now, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. And I'm Jamie Britton. And you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com. Ah!